0: Good morning. Good morning. Try it again. Good morning. Good to see you all in church. If you're new to the mill and would be kind enough to fill out a welcome card, we would very much appreciate that. You can go to the mill.church/welcome on your smartphone, the mill.church/welcome an underutilized web URL that I thought of too this morning when i was on the way to church and i'm verifying this destination to make sure it's going to get you where i think it's going to get you is the mill dot church/pray the mill dot church/pray you can submit a prayer request there at any point our staff prays over our church request they come to us in a variety of different ways voicemails text messages Uh, But we do pray over you regularly, as do our elders, so I want to encourage you, the Mill.Church slash pray. It's an underutilized uh, resource. If you're new and would be kind enough to fill out a welcome card, it'd be great to get to know you a little better. You can do that, I've already said this, haven't I, at the Mill.Church slash welcome, or you can do it on hard copy at the back. A couple more announcements before we get going. Thrivent Workshop is coming up in two weeks, so if you're interested in the, I would say, what should we call them, basics or fundamentals of personal finance? Nate is at the back, Nate Heeg. He played drums this morning. He's going to be doing this course on November the 14th during our second service. So theoretically, two weeks from today, you could attend in the first service and you could sit during the second service in the Commons area and take in a course put on by Thrivent. This will be one of four courses. We'll give you the topic of each one, but this is kind of an introductory level into personal finance. So take advantage of that. If you will, you can sign up at the mill.church slash events. Also of importance is Thanksgiving is right around the corner. This is the last day of October, believe it or not. We're almost into November. So one, if you would be eating alone on Thanksgiving Sunday, or I almost said Thanksgiving Sunday, Thanksgiving day, you can come here this year for a nice warm meal. So we want to make you aware of that. Andy Savikas and his family are putting on this event. Wave at me, Andy. Andy uh, has has been in ownership and management over a number of grocery stores over the last couple of decades. He and his family own and operate Stratford Family Foods in Stratford, and they've catered a lot in this area. And they're going to be working with our volunteers on Thanksgiving Day to put on a meal for people who would be eating alone in the community. Uh, You may say, what do you mean? I'm going to be at my family's. Who would volunteer on Thanksgiving Day? Well, believe it or not, without us even asking, we already have about five or six volunteers who have came to us and said, hey, my family's out of town. I would love to serve on Thanksgiving Day. Would you put me down? So uh, if you're interested in helping or eating, just know that that event is available to you. Last but not least, next week uh, is November the 7th, next Sunday. And we're going to be doing something a little different with our kids starting next Sunday and in perpetuity. So if you have uh, elementary age kids, and to us that class means basically kindergarten to fifth grade, kindergarten to fifth grade. We're going to check those kids in along with the littles, along with nursery, and along with our preschool class. But then we're going to ask that parents bring them inside the sanctuary with you for the worship songs only. So if you have an elementary student, uh, bring them, check them in, bring them in. And at the end of this time, at about now, I will say... The kids can be dis- dismissed to learn uh, over here in the kids' wing, the elementary students. Does that make sense? So this is, uh, I was blessed last week to lead worship and look out and see my three oldest closing their eyes and entering in to worship with the rest of us. This is the goal, right? These kids are going to be in the junior high shortly. And so we just kind of want to give them an opportunity to Experience what big church is like before they get here, thinking that transition will be easier, thinking they'll mature in terms of their understanding of what it means to sing to Jesus, what it means to to worship. So, next week, check them in first and then bring them into the sanctuary, the elementary students K through five, K through fifth grade, and we will dismiss them to join their elementary teacher at the entrance to the sanctuary. Make sense? Excellent. Well, again, good morning. We're in the fourth week of a series in the Gospel of John. You can turn to John 11 if you have brought your Bible along this morning. John 11. We're looking at a few different characterizations of people, characterizations that are based on real people that we encounter in this book. Uh, These are people who couldn't bring themselves to believe in Jesus. Belief, or we might as well say unbelief, is a theme throughout John's gospel. So this week we're looking at the disappointed. Those individuals who can't believe because they really feel like God should have done something for them. God should have done something for me. Uh, Therefore, I have a really hard time believing Uh, Life is in turmoil. Life life is chaotic. Life is relatively unscripted. I can't seem to plan anything. What is God doing? I thought God was on my team. I thought God was with me. Um, He didn't, you know, supply, so forth and so on. There's a a lot of people that find themselves here at one point or another in life. Uh, Ted Turner, the media mogul creator of CNN and TBS, is a multi-billionaire. He is among the disappointed. Uh, He um, was a very religiously committed uh, junior hire. Uh, He was in the youth group. He wanted to be a missionary. Uh, However, when he was 15 years old, his younger sister Mary Jane contracted at 12 years of age lupus, this degenerative uh, tissue disease disease she was racked with pain throughout her whole body she was constantly vomiting her screams absolutely filled uh, ted's home uh, ted regularly came home and held her hand tried to comfort her he prayed for recovery for her for healing for her she meanwhile uh, prayed to die she wanted out of her suffering and after years of misery that's exactly what she, what happened she did die Ted's dad, Ed Turner, said at the time, if that's the type of God that God is, I want nothing to do with God. And Ted lost his faith. He said this, I was taught that God was love and God was power, and I couldn't understand how someone so innocent should be made or allowed to suffer so. And on March 5th, 1963, after having breakfast with his wife, Ed Turner, the father of Ted Turner, went upstairs and placed a 38 caliber pistol to his mouth and he pulled the trigger and he was 53 years of age. And that sealed the deal for Ted Turner. Ted uh, would say, if that's the type of God he is, I too want nothing to do with him. Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N, this famous skeptic that lives uh, close to where I grew up in North Carolina. He says, this is the reason why he has lost his faith. He says, quote, I think that if, in fact, God Almighty appeared to me and gave me an explanation that could make sense, even of the torture, dismemberment, and slaughter of innocent children. And the explanation was so overpowering that I actually could understand then I would be the first to follow my knees in humble submission and adoration. On the other hand, I don't think that's going to happen. Hoping that it will is probably just wishful thinking. A leap of faith made by those who are desperate both to remain faithful to God and to cope with the harsh realities of this world. End quote. I've shared with you two examples of relatively well-known people They're extreme, I'll give you that. Uh, But even if you haven't lost your faith, I think we've all gone through something that causes us to ask questions like, is God really as good as he claims to be? C.S. Lewis lost his bout with, uh, lost his wife, excuse me, to her bout with cancer. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. Keep in mind, if you're unfamiliar with his work, he, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series. He uh, didn't, didn't only write children's books. He wrote a lot of very contemplative works. He's considered to be one of the top scholars in Christendom uh, of the um, 20th century. And this is what C.S. Lewis uh, said verbatim years after, by the way, he became a Christian. He said... I can't understand why God is always there when things are going well, telling you what he expects of you, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? You find a door slammed in your face. You find a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? I've noticed when I see C.S. Lewis quotes on Facebook, I never see this one. It's not incredibly encouraging, is it? C.S. Lewis, mind you, Uh, made it through this difficult time. His faith was ultimately strengthened in the God that he believed in. But he articulates, I think we would all admit, if we were honest this morning, what we feel on at least occasions. We wonder, where is God? We seem to sense and feel our prayers bouncing off the proverbial ceiling. We ask, are you out there? Do you care about me? Do you see my state? Do you understand my plight? God, where are you? And I think we're really left with three options when it comes to God disappointing us. The first option is to lose our faith, like Ted Turner and Bart Ehrman, that he's really not there, that he's never been there, that that if he is, in fact, I I don't want anything to do with him, they'd say. And if he is there, again, I, I just can't imagine serving him. With all the evil in the world, the second response or option that we have is, is to completely isolate ourselves from the question and pretend like the question doesn't exist and just ignore the question all the time and gloss over it and refuse to think about it. And some people are afraid their faith just can't stand up to these questions, so they just don't think critically about these things. And they pretend, perhaps superficially, that nothing is ever wrong in, in life. And, and uh, that doesn't... Really consume your whole being because basically, God, uh, I I have a God that I, I can't really love with my whole heart, you know, which is an unfortunate takeoff. So then you get the third response, the best response, which, of course, is to press in deeper to God during a time of trial and to ask these hard questions of him. And to even beat your fists on the table or your chest like we've seen some biblical characters do and yell up at the heavens and ask Him where He is and express very human emotions. There's nothing wrong with growing... Did you know God can take your anger? He's big enough. He's tough enough to handle your questions. Um... We see Old Testament character in particular after Old Testament character really just reckoning, having it out with God. Not, not in a necessarily disrespectful or insincere way, but in a true raw gut level kind of expression. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, but to spend... A sweet time with Jesus, even if it's being completely vulnerable and honest, and allow him to comfort us and allow him to be our peace, knowing that we will, I don't believe we'll ever have clarity in some of life's most profound questions. I tell people that all the time. You may never know why Pastor Zach is this happening. You may never know. You may not. I think in some ways that's a more peace-providing answer. You may never know. Why so-and-so struggle with this? Why you're the one that developed this condition? Why this is happening in your life? You may never know. But we know, we know that while we may not have clarity in this life, we absolutely have certainty that God is faithful. We absolutely have certainty that He's good. And I want to get to that this morning in an unlikely, uh, perhaps, text. Um, Here is the question that I'll posit to you, Before we read, um, what do you do when God disappoints? What do you do when you feel let down by your creator? Do you struggle with belief? What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? All your friends are married, but you haven't found the right person yet, or... All your friends are getting promotions, but you haven't received the job you've wanted yet. Or others are having children, or your approach to retirement isn't looking good compared to your peers. All these things. And we think, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. How can this possibly be your plan? John chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of uh, the village of Bethany, excuse me. Mary and her sister Martha were there. It was Mary, verse two, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to Jesus saying, "Lord, he whom you love is ill." He whom you love is ill. See, Jesus had a very special relationship with this man. Um, What are they hoping for? What are they hoping for? That Jesus is going to heal this man, right? Their brother, Jesus' friend, Lazarus. Surely, if Jesus performed miracles for complete strangers, then Jesus would heal this man who He... Loves our brother. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. And it is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't sound very loving, does it? I hear somebody's ill. I'm just going to linger a while where I am. I'll be there in a couple of days. I understand he's really sick, but I'm just going to dilly-dally a little longer. I'll be there shortly. Don't lose heart. I'm just going to take my time. Now, if we read a few verses in... Farther, we see that this intentional two day delay that Jesus um, insisted on being on actually cost Lazarus his life. He died during Jesus' two day delay. So, um, that word, so, in verse 6, I think is curious. It wasn't that Jesus loved his family, but, we don't see the word, but, he waited. We see Jesus loved this family, so, so, he waited. Isn't that a curious word? So, he waited. Well, Why did he wait? How is it possible that Jesus waiting was a demonstration of his love? Verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. See, how are they interpreting falling asleep? The disciples are interpreting it the same way the woman at the well that we talked about in interpreted living water. And the same way that his disciples... Uh, interpreted in last week's message the bread of life, right? They interpret it literally. They thought Jesus meant he had only snoozed or taken a nap. And so Jesus then has to tell them plainly, verse 14, you don't understand, Lazarus has died. And can you just see Jesus kind of rolling his eyes at this point with these guys? He's just, you know, really, guys? Is that what you thought I meant? You thought... That I'm going to take a two-day walk to wake Lazarus up from a nap? Like, who sleeps for two days? That's ridiculous. Your question made no sense. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So actually, Jesus ended up taking a longer delay than he had initially set out to take. Jesus has taken all kinds of time. Gave these people. Four days, this corpse had been decaying. Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Notice that Martha has the same problem we do. God, where are you? Where were you? Why didn't you fix this? Help me! Why didn't you come? Verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha interprets it literally, but in regard to the second coming of Jesus. Martha said, I know that he will rise again, the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, the guy who's going to orchestrate that is standing among you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, He shall yet live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And she says, yes, verse 27, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly, and she went to meet Jesus. Verse 32, now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had only been here, we know you can heal the sick, but we don't trust that you can heal, rise uh, someone up from death. Right? If only you had been here. My goodness, you're late. If only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Everybody say, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept. Let's look at how Jesus responded to these two sisters in their need. Okay, because he does it a little differently per sister. So because Mary and Martha made this statement, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. um, I want you to see how they respond in different ways. First, with Martha, notice that Jesus actually gives a very theological answer. He has a Bible class. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, he's teaching theology. He, you know, the one who believes in me will truly never die. Is he helping Lazarus in that moment? <laughs> no, he's not. He's, he's trying to share with Martha about he's, how he's divine in nature, but he's not bringing Lazarus up yet. And even when he does die, he won't really be dead, because one day I'll reverse all that, Jesus effectively says. Now let me start, uh, stop here and, and build brief, briefly. Man, some Sunday mornings I just feel like I don't have words. I feel like I stumble over my words like you would not believe. This is one of those Sunday mornings, so forgive me if my words aren't rolling out. Just some days they don't. Uh, and I can't see it coming. They just don't roll out. So here are three important truths regarding the theology of suffering. Okay? This is important. Because these are the big questions that people have. Um, Number one, suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. Suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. So if if you've ever wondered, why do we struggle? Why do we suffer? It's because we have been, the human race, effectively cursed as the result of our sin. God created the world with zero suffering. Zero. It was absolutely perfect in the garden. And it was humanity's sin. It was Adam and Eve's rebellion and everybody else's rebellion since that it was our voluntary participation. You can think of it this way and bad of all kinds that cause God to release a curse onto ourselves. Uh, Most of the objections that are raised against God about suffering are built on this assumption. Are you ready? Um, We as a human race deserve good things. We deserve good things from God. Uh, We are owed good things because we're good people. Therefore, God is unjust. I bet this is what Ted Turner and Bart Ehrman would say, Therefore, God is unjust, the logic goes, for not giving us the good things that we deserve. Does the Bible teach this? The Bible never teaches this. Ever. The Bible never says that we're fundamentally good. The Bible teaches that we don't deserve good things because we have rebelled against God. We've actually deserved in this life, if we deserve anything, physical and spiritual death. However, God gives us good things anyway. God gives us good things though we we are undeserving. We call that grace. This includes God's common grace as it were that both the believer and the unbeliever enjoy. Things like sunshine, things like seasons, things like plants, things like animals. And the fact that God has given us all of this time to repent and steer away from our rebellion and obstinance and back towards Him. He's given us 76 years, gentlemen, on average, to turn back to Himself. Ladies, He's given you 81 years, on average, to turn back to Himself. That is unspeakable grace. That's what the Bible teaches. So the Bible really doesn't wrestle with what we wrestle with. We wrestle with the problem of evil so much. The Bible doesn't teach that we deserve good. Rather, the Bible marvels at God's amazing grace. How benevolent is God to give us what we don't deserve? In other words, instead of asking why me during the bad years, the Christians should be asking why not me during all the good years. Instead of ask, asking why me during the bad years, Christians should be asking why not me? I'm undeserving. During all the good years. So as sinners... To put God on some kind of trial for our suffering as if he were unjust and we're the ones who are compassionate and think think things should go better. This is what the Jewish people call chutzpah, which they define as a guy who kills his own mother. A guy kills his mother and then asks the court to treat him more favorably because he's an orphan. See. But I, I'm an orphan, you ought to give me a lighter sentence. Right? That, that doesn't make any sense. Neither does it make sense. I once asked a great missionary friend of mine, how, you know, sometimes I really struggle with the fact that we're born in the United States of America and we have all this access to the gospel. We can download it on our phones. And people around the world have, you know, Pages of scripture in Asia that they treasure more than we would ever care to even open our smartphones. Or they have nothing. They have, they have, they've never heard of the name of Jesus. I said, how could that be? How could that be that God would design the world like that? And he looked at me and he said, doesn't your very question assume that you're more compassionate than God? I was like, wow. Yep. That's exactly what my question consumed, Or rather assumed. That I'm more compassionate. That I have a more tender, affectionate care for people than the Father. That's ludicrous. Right? So it's not that there's anything wrong with God. It's that our assumptions are wrong about the world. Number two. Another important truth about the theology of suffering. God, in his love and mercy, has reversed the curse by suffering in our place. The only innocent sufferer that has ever lived is Jesus Christ. He's the only innocent sufferer. He's the only one who shouldn't have suffered, is Jesus um, Jesus was the only human to ever live free from the curse. And, and yet he voluntarily gave his life up. And when he did, he overturned that very curse. He started the process of healing. And that healing begins with canceling our sin and restoring us to the Father. And one day, uh, enjoy this, those of you whose, whose bodies are more aged than others. One day we're going to get brand new bodies too. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. They're going to be awesome. Okay? We're going to get all over heaven We can climb any hill we want. Okay? We can walk all day if we want to. Okay? We can run at top speed. It's going to be great when we get to heaven. So God, in his love and mercy, has reversed the curse. And he started with saving our soul. And one day he's going to save our bodies too. Number three, God now uses our suffering for His glory and our good. Just like in the text, God uses our suffering for His glory. How in the world can it be that our suffering brings God glory? How in the world can it be that our suffering brings our own good? People that that balk at this point say things like, what about the Holocaust? What about September 11th what about those events and and i say you're already forgetting about truth number one truth number one says suffering is just the result of the curse of death and for our sin just like the sun comes up indiscriminately what 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 is the famous proverb that the same sun that hardens the clay melts wax right so the sun shines indiscriminately on everyone, right? So the curse of death indiscriminately affects us all. Um, understand that that what I'm not saying when I talk about the curse of death is that any curse that you any anything that you're experiencing, excuse me, in your body is a result of a sin you've committed. This, this theology is in general terms. So humanity experiences suffering because humanity, in general, has sinned. Nobody needs to be wondering, oh my gosh, my back aches today. What did I do to grieve the Father? Okay, that's not how this works. But in general, we're cursed. And yet, he uses it for his glory. Okay, isn't it fair to say that we're all under the same curse, we can't even say that the curse is unfair because we're all under it. Isn't it true that Lazarus himself was under the curse? I mean, didn't he later die a natural death without being resurrected another time? Even Lazarus experienced death. So, the, so for the believer, God is, is taking away the sting of death by offering us Uh, forgiveness in this life. This is why the Apostle Paul says, all things work together for good. Uh, Romans 8, 28, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1, 11, uh, so that we would resound to the praise of His glory. Do you remember when Joseph uh, could say to those who had committed grave injustices against him in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God repurposed For good. Okay? So that's how God gets glory. Now let me show you how this plays out in the story. And I'm almost done. In it, you're going to see a pattern for all suffering. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Jesus, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Is it hot or cold in this climate? It's very hot. Okay, hey, this is going to be nasty, Jesus. This is going to have a, a big stench, Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus, come out! Verse 44 The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. I mean, what do you think that looked like with him coming out? Like hopping like he was in a sack race or, or something? <laughs> His hands and feet were still bound. Did he roll out of there? I mean, how did this this work, right? And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful story. Now, here is my caveat of caveats. And you may have thought this coming. Sometimes we see this kind of beauty on the earth too. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't. Uh, even Lazarus, again, died again. Uh, sometimes we go through something difficult and we wonder where Jesus is. His arrival seems days, if not months, late. God rolls the stone away. God brings new life. Other times we think, whoa, here is a stench of death and, and God just kind of leaves us there. And we don't see resurrection. Okay? Um, regardless... Of whether or not we have answers in this life. Here's what the the Apostle Paul calls our suffering. Are you ready? A light and momentary affliction. Even if God doesn't save us from whatever condition ails us in this life. Paul says our sufferings are light and momentary. And you know what he compares them to? He compares them to birth pangs. Birth pangs. Uh, If you hear two people, you're in the hospital, you hear a person on each side of you, and one of them is moaning because they're in their final stages of life. Um, And another one of them is expressing uh, pain because they are birthing a child. Don't you respond emotionally a bit differently one direction than you do the other direction? If somebody's experiencing intense pain... And about to die. And somebody else is birthing a child. And experiencing you know, intense pain. You still kind of find joy in the pain over here. Because you know soon. That's going to be swallowed up. By the glory of a child. Coming forth. The apostle Paul makes the point. For the believer. This life is like one big long birthing experience. That's his point. This life Is birth pains. And for the unbeliever. This life is like one long. Aged. Suffering and dying experience. And for the believer. In light of forever. The pain in this moment is going to disappear. Jesus is going to come back for us. Now. This is what I want to say. um, To wrap this up. I want to tell you how Mary responded. Because this is different how Jesus responded rather to Mary. Because Martha, he talked theologically. It was kind of meaty. You may have even been born, uh, bored thus far in this, in this sermon. Mary said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that Martha said, but with new detail. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he wept. Have you ever wondered why did Jesus weep If he knew that in ten minutes he was going to lift Lazarus up out of the grave. Why did Jesus weep? Jesus is giving a picture of how he responds to our suffering. Are you suffering today? Even though Jesus knows your pain is temporary... It's not some kind of cold knowing where Jesus says, toughen up, buttercup. Figure it out. Quit being so sensitive. No, in being human, Jesus understands what suffering feels like and he weeps with us. Do you know how to know when a friend of yours loves you? Have you ever had a friend weep with you? That's like a telltale sign that your friend cares about you. A a day to God, the Bible says, is is like a thousand years. Ten minutes to Jesus that he was waiting to raise Lazarus from death when he's over here weeping with Mary is not all that much different than 10,000 minutes. And yet Jesus can see most clearly how temporary her suffering is and he still engages in her suffering with her. He weeps with her. What a friend we have in Jesus. I mean, that he's willing to weep with us. The gospel even tells us there's another time where Jesus wept. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You may remember this. And Jesus would weep with such great anguish that he would, uh, I forget the name of the uh, medical condition. But Jesus would weep with with such anguish that he would sweat drops of blood. Drops of blood would come out of his pores. His capillaries in his face were bursting. Okay? And uh, nobody would respond to Jesus. I mean, his friends fell asleep. He told them to stay awake and pray. They fell asleep. God turned his back on Jesus... And, and we often look over the fact that Jesus died on across, uh, a cross, much larger and more daunting than that one, friendless and godless. And I think that's part of the reason why he said he'd never leave us alone. He'd never forsake us. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone. Psalm 23 Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. See, sometimes we need a theological understanding to get through the suffering, sometimes we need Jesus' presence. What do you need today? What if Jesus appeared to you and told you this morning in person, this is for my glory. Whatever it is that you're going through, this is for my glory. If you knew that it was all somehow in an inexplicable way working toward the glory of God, that he was fully in control, And completely in love with you. Could you endure? Could you endure? Of course you could. Of course you could. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I don't know the degree that that people are suffering today. I don't know to what level people are disappointed today. Lord, but I pray in addition to seeing a dry-eyed Savior that we would have the ability in our understanding to picture one who weeps with us. One who comforts us. One who sits and listens. One who makes himself available. One who pauses One who endures. Lord, we ask for healing in this life. You've said to approach your throne of grace confidently. Lord, we we also take the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who said, Lord, you can save us. You will save us. But if you don't, we're going to go in the furnace anyway. If you don't, nothing changes. We know you've saved us in perpetuity in heaven. That is the greatest miracle you could have ever done. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.